All right, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for coming for the conference. Uh, we have the honor of introducing the Hevners. Jason Hevner received his MD from University of Maryland and then did his residency and fellowship training at Yale University, New Haven Medical Center. He also got lean healthcare certification at the University of Michigan College of Engineering. And then he returned to the area as chairman of the Department of Critical Care at the University of Maryland BWMC campus. Moshe Hevner received her Doctor of Pharmacy from the University of Maryland, did a residency at Yale University New Haven Medical Center, and then is currently an Assistant Professor of Critical Care in the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. I'm, I'm noticing a trend here, and they're both named Hevner. What are the odds of that? Anyhow, um, they will be speaking on the pink elephant in the room, advances in protocol-driven management of the alcohol withdrawal syndrome in the ICU. You guys able to hear me? Is that loud enough? Um, I don't know if is there a volume. Yeah, I don't. It's not, it's, you know, it was working up well. until the time. Yeah. Let's try to get closer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, can you guys hear me now? Is that better? Okay. Um, so thank you for giving us the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, Uh, we have no relevant disclosures. And so in 1913, Jack London described an alcoholic as the man, the man whom we all know, stupid, unimaginative, falls frequently in the gutter, and who sees in the extremity of his ecstasy blue mice and pink elephants. And nearly 100 years later, um, we can still use this very colorful description to describe our patients with alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Um, and so today, uh, we would like to review the epidemiology, complications, and the clinical presentation of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Uh, we'll review the key studies of intensive care unit specific withdrawal protocols. And then we would like to describe our experience with the development and implementation of a novel ICU-specific alcohol withdrawal uh, management protocol. So start with a patient that is familiar to all of us. So this is a 67-year-old man who presents with three days of shortness of breath, cough, and fatigue. Uh, he has a history of uh, dyslipidemia and hypertension. He reports being a non-smoker and drinking one glass of wine per night. And based upon his uh, clinical presentation, exam, and labs, he's diagnosed with sepsis secondary to pneumonia. And he has started on broad-spectrum antibiotics and high-flow nasal cannula is admitted to the ICU for respiratory failure. So the next morning, uh, the patient's respiratory status is improving, but he becomes increasingly diaphoretic, anxious, remains oriented. And the ICU intern asks about ordering CWA for the assessment and management of alcohol withdrawal uh, for this patient. 
And so we'd like to start with a, uh, a little bit of a review of alcohol use disorders, alcohol withdrawal, and what impact that has on critical illness. And so alcohol use disorders are defined as any excessive alcohol intake, which includes abuse, binge drinking, alcohol dependence. And when we look at the prevalence in the United States, somewhere between 5 and 10% of patients have an alcohol use disorder, um, with, the, with it being about twice as common in men compared to women. When we look at medical ICU admissions, um, upwards of 20% of those patients are in the ICU for some reason, either directly or indirectly related to alcohol disorder. And when we look at trauma patients, it's estimated that even higher, about 40% of patients, have an alcohol use disorder. So when we think about what are the complications of this and what impact does this have on our patients in the ICU, um, we know that patients that have a history of an alcohol use disorder have nearly a 50% increase in their risk of mechanical ventilation. Um, we know that alcohol abuse uh, and dependence uh, results in immune dysregulation and a loss of protective reflexes, which can lead to pneumonia and sepsis. Um, in patients that have an alcohol use disorder that develops severe sepsis, they have a two-fold increase in the risk of mechanical ventilation, as well as a two- to four-fold increase in the risk of developing ARDS. And when we talk about alcohol withdrawal in these patients, those patients that require mechanical ventilation have a prolonged course compared to those patients that do not have a history of alcohol dependence. And likewise, the longer that someone is, requires treatment for alcohol withdrawal, the chance of pneumonia goes up exponentially. And then when we talk about delirium tremens as um, kind of the severe uh, spectrum of this, um, upwards of a quarter to a third of patients uh, with alcohol withdrawal will develop delirium tremens. And with this, it carries about an 8% risk of mortality uh, despite aggressive treatments. And so these patients can come to us in the ICU at any stage um, in the withdrawal spectrum. And so we know that within 2 to 12 hours after the last drink, patients can develop hype, uh, autonomic hyperactivity. And then over the next 12 to 24 hours, they develop hallucinosis. And then over the next 1 to 2 days, um, we can begin to start seeing seizures and then progress into delirium tremens, defined as a combination of hallucinations plus disorientation. We expect to see a peak of symptoms within the first five days, but that can be uh, drawn out to 10 days. And so if we start talking about the literature, I think um, you know, one of the landmark studies that we need to begin with is this study from 1994 that was published in JAMA. This was a randomized, double-blind, controlled study where they looked at standing-dose Librium versus symptom-triggered Librium. And so in the first group, they had patients that got standing uh, uh, Q6-hour Librium. And then on top of that, there was a CEWA protocol um, for PRN dosages. And uh, the second group um, was uh, received a uh, placebo uh, for their baseline, and then they had uh, CEWA-driven, symptom-triggered uh, management on a PRM basis. 
And so what we see from these patients is that there was no difference in clinical outcomes between the two groups uh, that was uh, measurable. But when we look at the duration of treatment and the cumulative dose of benzodiazepine in these patients, there was a significant reduction um, both of these parameters for the patients that were in the symptom triggered course. All right, so in the absence of clear guidelines developed by professional organizations um, in the management of AWS in the ICU, there's obviously going to be a risk of significant variability in practice between institutions, between ICUs, um, and certainly at the provider level. Um, so one strategy to try to standardize care on an institutional level is to develop protocols. And we do this with a lot of things. Um, and there are certainly advantages to protocol implementation um, to reduce those harmful variations in practice and in care, um, to maximize efficiency. And protocols have certainly been demonstrated to improve clinical outcomes. Um, but despite those great advantages, there are obviously disadvantages with protocols. Um, uh, with essentially putting patient care on autopilot. Um, and so some would say that protocols uh, minimize uh, clinical judgment and, th and critical thinking um, and encourage complacency because essentially providers are not necessarily thinking about prescribing practi practices but rather following kind of on autopilot um, what the protocol is calling for. Um, they may also stifle learning, um, particularly for trainees who maybe aren't as familiar with the rationale behind the protocol um, and so are sort of just following what that protocol entails rather than understanding what would have happened if that protocol was not necessarily in place. Um, so for these reasons, it's very important to be proactive in targeting and addressing these pitfalls early on um, in the process of development of protocols and implementation, um, and then certainly regularly afterwards as well. <clears throat> so let's focus specifically on AWS protocols. Um, as you guys know, the CIWA is um, the scoring tool and, uh, and uh, symptom-triggered treatment protocol that was revised in the 1980s and has really become kind of the cornerstone of our alcohol withdrawal management in the non-ICU setting. Um, however, as many of you know, this was validated in an outpatient 20-bed uh, detox unit. Um, and while it was studied uh, subsequently, it really hasn't been well studied in post-operative patients, patients who are deemed medically complex, or those in the ICU. So essentially, all of our patients fall into at least one of these categories. Um, and then just logistically speaking, it's very challenging to, or virtually impossible for some patients to be able to apply the CWA to our patient populations um, in a patient who's in the ICU with severe DTs um, because it really requires the patient to be able to answer questions and to follow commands, which as we all know, a patient who's in severe DTs and hallucinating is not gonna be able to follow our commands very well. So what we're left with here is that essentially there are no validated protocols for alcohol withdrawal in our ICUs um, that are available to us. <clears throat> 
Um, and so in the absence of treatment guidelines and no validated ICU-specific uh, guidance, we really have to look to the literature to see what kind of protocols have been published on in, um, previously and kind of take what we can learn from those protocols and establish our own best practices. Um, and so the only scale that has actually been developed for use in ICU patients specifically is the um, MINES, which was developed by Doug DeCarolis and colleagues um, in the Minnesota VA. Um, and the benefit of using an ICU-specific assessment tool over something like the CIWA um, would be that it is um, specific to the signs and symptoms of alcohol withdrawal like the CIWA, but it also, you can actually use it in a patient who's perhaps not lucid enough to follow commands. Um, so in 2007, the study that was published by DeCarolis and colleagues, um, they used a lorazepam-based treatment algorithm um, and the MINDS scoring tool um, and included patients who were admitted specifically to the MICU for severe alcohol withdrawal symptoms. Um, and the protocol used, or encouraged the use of escalating doses of lorazepam based on the patient's symptoms. Um, and uh, as an example of one uh, benefit to the protocol, um, patients were not put on a continuous infusion um, until they had consistently had scores above 20, which was kind of like the more severe um, end of that scoring tool range, um, and had received at least 24 milligrams of lorazepam as, or as IV pushes. Um, and with this study, they observed decreased benzodiazepine requirements and a faster time to symptom resolution as defined by uh, mind score of less than 20. Um, but they didn't really observe any other interesting clinical outcomes associated with those changes, um, perhaps because partially because of the smaller sample size of this study. Another study that was published in that same year in 2007 was you're all very prob probably somewhat familiar with this study. Um, it was published by uh, Gold and colleagues, and, um, and they essentially titrated to a symptom-triggered um, uh, treatment protocol, but used the sedation agitation scale as their assessment. Um, and they used uh, diazepam and phenobarbital at escalating doses in order to gain symptom control. Um, similar to the DeCarolis study, this study also admitted or only enrolled patients who were admitted specifically to the MICU for alcohol withdrawal symptoms. Um, but in comparison to the DeCarolis study, uh, their outcomes were slightly different. So Gold reported increased benzodiazepine requirements, actually. Um, but they did see improvement in clinical outcomes. So they saw a decreased need for mechanical ventilation. Um, and interestingly, the need for mechanical ventilation specifically was associated with increased risk for ICU length of stay as well as increased risk for nosocomial pneumonias. More recently in 2014, uh, Jeremiah Duby and colleagues at uh, UCSD um, kind of broadened our uh, generalizability of, of ICU-specific alcohol withdrawal protocols um, by including all patients who are admitted to any ICU who then, for any reason, who then went on to develop AWS. So this is nice because this kind of represents more so our overall patient population that comes in for another reason and then maybe develops alcohol withdrawal um, as a consequence of, of being in the hospital and not having access to alcohol. Um, and so in comparison to the DeCarolis study, which used MINDS as their assessment tool, and the uh, GOLD study, which um, uh, 
used uh, SAS, this study actually titrated to the Richmond agitation and sedation scale. Um, and so with protocol implementation, um, and their protocol was kind of similar to the gold study where they used uh, diazepam and phenobarbital at escalating doses, um, they saw significant improvement um, in benzodiazepine requirements, need for mechanical ventilation, and duration of mechanical ventilation, and also saw a decreased ICU length of stay. Um, so this sounds great, but there were some notable limitations. Um, specifically, there was actually a higher, a significantly higher SOFA score in the pre-protocol group as compared to their post-protocol group. So I don't need to explain to this group why that would potentially um, kind of convolute the picture with their great results that they saw in comparing the two groups. <clears throat> um, and then most recently, um, just in 2007, Sen and colleagues um, conducted a study similarly looking at a more generalizable patient population of all patients who were admitted to the MICU um, for any reason, who then went on to develop alcohol withdrawal. Um, and interestingly, they actually allowed nurses in the study to titrate or to do assessments based on either CWA or uh, SAS. Um, based on whether the nurse felt like the patient was going to be able to respond to questions um, that were in the CWA. Um, and Doobie and colleagues, uh, oh, and their, their treatment protocol was specifically lorazepam based. Um, and they found decreased benzodiazepine requirements and shorter duration of alcohol withdrawal treatment um, saw decreased need for mechanical ventilation shorter hospital stay, but no difference in ICU length of stay, um, and actually decreased ICU mortality. So this sounds like overly positive to me. Um, there were definitely some limitations to the study. So just looking at it very quickly, obviously you can see that there were 135 patients in their pre-protocol group and just 32 patients post-protocol. So to me, although there were really positive outcomes when comparing the pre-post periods, um, perhaps this was actually more due to chance um, given the small numbers that they actually had in their post-protocol group. Um, the other big limitation to this study is that um, they saw significantly increased use of dexmedetomidine post-protocol and, and significantly decreased use of propofol. So as we all know, based on just, you know, uh, Presidex, propofol, uh, studies that have been done for overall ICU sedation, um, some of these outcomes that we're observing in comparing the pre and post protocol eras um, per perhaps could have actually been attributed to that difference um, and not necessarily just the change in implementation of the protocol alone. So now that we've reviewed the protocols that have been published previously, um, this brings us to our experience with um, developing and implementing a novel ICU-specific alcohol withdrawal protocol for our patients um, at Yale New Haven Hospital. And to put this in perspective, uh, Yale New Haven Hospital is a 1,500-bed um, hospital with six adult ICUs. Uh, Yale New Haven is the largest of five hospitals within the health system, um, which spans across the uh, shoreline of Connecticut up through the westernmost part of Rhode Island. And they have an integrated formulary as well as an integrated electronic medical record. Um, and all protocols that are approved need to be ultimately approved at the health system level. So I'm going to take us back a couple years to 2009. 
um, when we had paper flow sheets, and I'm actually amazed that I still have a copy of this flow sheet electronically, but um, this is a de-identified patient flow sheet from um, a patient with alcohol withdrawal uh, who came to the MICU. Um, and as you can see here, hopefully you can see this, the patient was started on a lorazepam continuous infusion um, only after receiving like two milligrams of lorazepam as an IV push. Um, the continuous infusion was then titrated up by one milligram or two milligrams an hour every hour or so um, with just a few boluses of lorazepam um, over the course of a 24-hour period. This patient then finished out his first day in the ICU with his agitation finally resolved, um, but he ends up with a continuous infusion of Ativan at nine milligrams an hour, and he actually had to be intubated for airway protection. Um, he subsequently developed a ventilator-associated pneumonia, not surprisingly, and then it took him two days to wake up once the Ativan uh, drip was, start was uh, stopped. Um, so this is not an isolated case, and I bring this to you because um, this was actually a fairly common way that patients were approached um, or managed with alcohol withdrawal um, back in 2009, and there was pretty significant practice variability. Um, so there was some proper management, but there was also a lot of this being occurring in our ICU at the time. Um, and so... In 2009, essentially what we, were, what we were left with was that we had no ICU-specific alcohol withdrawal protocol or guideline in, our, in any of our ICUs to drive our practice. So we had this really significant variability in care. Um, we also saw that alternative causes of agitation were often underappreciated. Um, and what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example. So we had a patient with severe pancreatitis who had a lot of pain, um, we really weren't addressing the pain and we felt like his agitation was likely due to alcohol withdrawal and so we kept targeting it with a benzo approach um, and then escalating doses of lorazepam essentially on a drip, very ag continue to be very agitated um, and then once we realized that we actually got essentially the diagnosis wrong, um, we were able to get the patient off the lorazepam drip and really control his agitation by treating the underlying cause of it which was the pain. Um, so we also saw, as, we, as I mentioned with the flow sheet, variability in prescribing and assessment. Um, and so a group of us saw all of this happening and we came together as a group of nurses, physicians, and pharmacists and really decided um, that we need to address the elephant in the room and come up with some way to have a consistent assessment and treatment protocol. So the protocol that we came up with is now called the Yale Alcohol Withdrawal Protocol, or YAP, although I think we wish it was called the Hevner Protocol. Um, <laughs> but uh, at the time, um, essentially the only protocols that were, that were ICU-specific that were published were the DeCarolis study and the GOLD study. Um, and we liked certain aspects of each. So we liked the pharmacokinetic principles and assessment approach that the DeCarolis study took. Um, and we also liked the thought of using adjuvant therapies um, in conjunction with benzodiazepines that was taken in the GOLD study. Um, and so we sought to create our own novel protocol by incorporating some of these concepts and components that were, that were proven to be successful in previously published protocols. Um, and then essentially what we did was we, we paired a modified MINDS assessment tool with three different benzodiazepine treatment protocols with lorazepam, uh, diazepam, and midazolam pathways. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, 
the drug algorithms um, specifically were based on the unique onset of action and duration of action of the different agents. Uh-oh. We're going to move this. Um, okay. And then one of the biggest strengths of the YAP was that it reiterated the need for an accurate diagnosis, which is really what I emphasized with that pancreatitis case. Um, and it also suggests um, adjuvant therapies, which was another thing that we really were looking for, um, specifically to target the management of autonomic hyperactivity that we see with alcohol withdrawal, um, delirium, potentially a little bit of ICU delirium, and then pain, of course. Um, and as a safety check, um, it requires physician assessment of the patient at the bedside at critical times, so when the patient is really severely agitated. Um, so this is the MIND scoring tool that we modified as part of our protocol. Uh, and some of the advantages that we've already touched on, but I really want to emphasize of this tool over the RAS or SAS or even CIWA is the fact that it's targeted specifically at alcohol withdrawal symptoms, unlike RAS or SAS, um, but it also has the ability to be used in a patient who's perhaps um, unable to, uh, really unable to answer questions, unlike the CIWA. Um, and then we further objectified the assessment tool um, to make it even less ambiguous for nurses who were doing the assessment. So we, in, in place of the agitation assessment, which was really kind of vague in the original minds, um, we added RAS into that component. Um, we also added a lot of uh, clarifications and examples within the other parameters so that the nurse would have very clear guidance as far as how to score the patient. Um, this is the first page, and I think probably the most important page of the YAP. Um, and so, uh, sorry. And essentially, um, this is the part where the provider is coming up with the diagnosis of YAP and really committing to that diagnosis and then committing the patient to the protocol. Um, and so it's really intended to help with that intern who needs guidance when they're starting a patient on um, treatment for alcohol withdrawal. Um, and so it's essentially, you know, your patient's agitated and delirious. Um, make sure that you rule out any underlying causes for their agitation that may be life-threatening. So looking at gas exchange impairment um, or perhaps metabolic derangements that may be contributing. Um, thinking about really serious ventilator-associated issues, and then, of course, you know, infectious or ischemic causes that may be contributing to their agitation. Um, and then thinking about mitigating not the non-life-threatening causes of agitation, so things like the suboptimal treatment of pain, um, any chronic psychiatric illness or dementia that may be contributing to their presentation. Um, and then, of course, as we see frequently, thinking about drug-induced side effects that may be uh, leading to this presentation or drug-induced withdrawal syndromes and kind of figure out how those aspects may be contributing to the patient's symptoms and really target those aspects as well. And then only once these diagnostic things are considered and fully assessed will the provider then con uh, commit to the treatment of the patient via one of these um, three pathways for the treatment. Um, and so I'm going to walk you through um, the lorazepam-based uh, treatment protocol, which is by far the most frequently used treatment protocol of the three. Um, and so in this, 
if the patient is severely agitated and is scoring at like a score of greater than 20, um, they would actually receive a dose of midazolam 10 milligrams. Um, and that's intentional within the lorazepam protocol because of the different onset of action of the different drugs. So in a really severely agitated patient, we're going to want to get them under control faster. So we give the, the midazolam, uh, get them under control, um, and then commit them to the lorazepam maintenance essentially. Um, and so if their score is anywhere below 20, basically, they're going to be getting lorazepam 4 milligrams, 2 milligrams, or, or nothing um, based on the severity of their symptoms. Um, and then in step two, we have um, essentially, again, reiterating, you know, thinking about the diagnosis, is this definitely all alcohol withdrawal or is there any other component that's contributing? Um, and then thinking about making sure that we're um, treating the patient's pain appropriately and treating underlying psych psychiatric illnesses, um, restarting antihypertensives that they may be withdrawing from and kind of exhibiting what looks like autonomic symptoms um, that's not really related to alcohol withdrawal. Um, and then if you really think that your patient, this is all just severe alcohol withdrawal, then committing to something for like benzorefractory alcohol withdrawal um, using agents like um, clonidine or dexmedetomidine to kind of get a different mechanism of action or phenobarbital to get that synergistic effect. Um, and then in step three of the protocol, this is really where we um, would initiate the continuous infusion of lorazepam. Um, really only after the patient's gotten several bolus doses of benzos first. Um, and so again, reassessing the patient, again, reassessing the patient at the bedside by the provider, um, and then committing the patient to the continuous infusion. Um, and the goal here is really to make sure that we are optimizing the pharmacokinetics. Um, and so we're giving a lorazepam IV push bolus up front uh, and then starting the infusion and giving a re-bolus every time the rate of the drip goes up. Um, at the opposite side of that spectrum, if the patient ever becomes attended at any point on the protocol, um, then the nurse is instructed to immediately shut off the drip without having to notify anybody uh, right away, but then essentially get a provider to the bedside to reevaluate the patient and kind of see what is going on diagnostically. Um, so this is a, a screenshot of what the uh, flow sheet looks like currently in EPIC um, at Yellow Haven. So it's nice because it actually gives all the different components of the scoring system broken down for you, but it also uh, essentially calculates the total score for the nurse, so there's no calculation error risk or anything like that. Um, and based on nursing feedback, we actually um, incorporated the opportunity for the nurse to give a patient a score of zero in any perimeter if they're unable to assess something. Um, but as you can see in this box that just popped up, um, that's documented slightly differently. So as a team, we can actually like differentiate between, you know, essentially where the patient's getting their points from and really target our adjuvant therapies as such. Um, so this is the overall implementation that we uh, went through with um, protocol development and then full implementation throughout the health system. Um, and so we started out in 2010 when we did our initial development and then piloted our initial protocol within the Yale MICU. Um, and we got a lot of feedback from end users, made a lot of changes quickly, um, and really optimized the protocol that way. Um, we then took um, our initial data to the local PNT um, and were able to get approval for um, protocol implementation within the hospital for all adult, six adult ICUs um, in spring of 2012. And then 
in the summer of 2014, we took this to the health system level um, and presented some kind of a more robust data set and we're able to get system approval for implementation in all 12 adult ICUs throughout the health system. Um, and so this was a success not just because of the outcomes that Jason's going to tell you about in a second, um, but also because this was the first protocol or drug protocol that was implemented on a health system level, um, which was really a huge step forward in integration across the health system. Um, and so now I'm going to turn it over to my partner um, who is going to go over some of the studies that we've done with the YAP. So in addition to the actual implementation of this protocol, we took this as an opportunity to look at um, what were the impacts of protocol implementation. And so this was a before and after study in the medical ICU at Yale. Um, we included patients that were at risk for alcohol withdrawal after ICU admission, um, and these are patients that were admitted to the ICU for any reason. Uh, we excluded a few patients, which included transfers from an outside hospital because we didn't have much control of what care they had prior. Um, if they had no use of alcohol prior to admission, or if they received no benzodiazepines in the ICU. And so we collected um, a number of data points on their characteristics, comorbidity, severity of illness, and ultimately the clinical outcomes. Our primary outcome was ICU intubation, which we defined as intubation after transfer to the ICU, and ICU, ICU pneumonia, which we defined as initiation of antibiotics for a lower respiratory tract infection more than 24 hours after ICU admission. And so for the purposes of this study, um, during the training period where uh, the nurses, pharmacists, and providers were educated on uh, this protocol, it was not fully implemented in EPIC, and so it was not able to be ordered at that time. And so for this study, we collapsed these two time periods into one um, and then compared pre and post. We identified our patients based on a review of ICD-9 codes that involved alcohol use diagnoses. Um, and so we were able to find 453 patients. 220 were excluded, um, and the majority of these were for no alcohol use. So for example, in the ICD-9 codes, um, we were able to pull out somebody that had alcoholic cirrhosis, but they may not have been drinking for months or years beforehand, um, and so those patients were excluded. And so we ended up uh, including 233 patients, um, 139 uh, in the pre-implementation group and 94 in the post-implementation group. And so when you look at our, uh, who our patients are, um, you can see that the majority of the patients are male, uh, middle-aged, white race. Um, the majority are insured by Medicaid, uh, followed by private insurance and Medicare. Um, our Apache 2 scores were around 12 in both groups. And you can see that around half of the patients were admitted to the ICU specifically for alcohol withdrawal and the other half for other reasons. Um, overall, between both of these groups, there was no statistically significant difference um, in these patient characteristics. When we looked in the post group of how many patients were actually prescribed this protocol, you can see that more than 90% were prescribed uh, the YAP protocol in the post-implementation period. So where do these patients come from? Um, as expected um, in most uh, ICU admissions, um, about three-quarters of them came from the ED. The others were transferred from the floor. Um, the majority of patients were, uh, after ICU care, were transferred back to the medical floor. We had one death in each patient group. 
And then ultimately, the majority of patients were subsequently transferred home, uh, followed by AMA uh, patients. Um, when we look at comorbidities between the two patients, we actually have almost double the comorbidities in the post-implementation group compared with the pre-group. Um, and to me, anecdotally, I think there's better documentation um, in between these two periods, which accounts for um, the difference. And so when we look at our outcomes, our primary outcome was ICU intubation. And you can see that we had a 67% reduction in uh, intubations in the ICU. Um, likewise, we had a 51% reduction in the onset of ICU pneumonias after protocol implementation. When we looked at complications, uh, including seizures, tachyarrhythmias, propylene glycol toxicity, there was no difference between the two groups. And we were unable to uh, identify a uh, difference in length of stay of both the hospital and the ICU um, between the two groups. Um, likewise, there was no difference in ICU readmission uh, between those. Um, when we looked at adjuvant used, um, for these patients, there was a significant increase in the use of clonidine um, in the post-implementation group. And so our hypothesis was that these differences would be secondary to the way that the benzodiazepines were given to these patients. Um, and especially with the more aggressive bolusing up front and trying to get people off drips and not have these long uh, kind of ongoing Ativan infusions. However, when we looked at this, there was no difference between total benzo use, benzos per day, time, patients on a drip, hours on a drip, median dose in the first 24 hours. And so we uh, subsequently have cut this data multiple different ways, and we cannot find a difference between benzodiazepine exposure between the groups. In our multivariate uh, logistic regression analysis, we adjusted for age, race, comorbidities, severity of illness, and the adjuvant therapies that were used. And what we found is that patients that were treated post-implementation had a decreased risk of ICU intubation with an odds ratio, um, impressively, of 0.13. And so in addition to the clinical outcomes, you know, we were also interested in trying to uh, promote this system-wide in all of the ICUs across the health system. And so we also wanted to look at what the implications would be for the health system as far as what the uh, cost impact was. And so although between the two groups there was no difference in the length of stay overall, when you look at the difference between the patients that were intubated and those that were not intubated, the length of stay was higher for those that were intubated, and equally so in both groups. And so in our pre-group, um, our in, uh, intubation rate was about 26%. Um, and so if you apply this intubation rate to the number of patients in the post group, uh, we estimated um, that we would expect 25 intubations. However, uh, we only had eight intubations during that time with a reduction in the observed to expected uh, by 17 intubations. When we look at the cost um, between these patients, for the intubated patients with the mean length of ICU length of stay of six days, um, the average ICU cost is uh, estimated to be $51,000. And for the non-intubated patients, about $21,000. And this is using an inflation-adjusted step-down cost analysis model. And so when we look at what this means globally, so if we look at the post-implementation patients, but assuming that they were not exposed to the protocol, 
then the estimated cost would be about $3.4 million. Um, if we apply the protocol, um, that cost would re be reduced to $2.9 million, with a, a cost savings of about $500,000 during the study period, which averages out to about $5,300 per patient um, that was treated. And so in 2014, there was 646 patients treated with this protocol throughout the health system. And so uh, when we look at the observed to expected uh, complications of intubations and uh, pneumonias, we had a significant reduction in both of these. And when we annualized this cost, um, we estimated a $3.5 million cost savings for the health system in one year. And so overall, um, the YAP implementation was associated with significant reductions in ICU intubations, reductions in ICU pneumonias, and substantial decreases in ICU cost. Likewise, we are able to successfully implement this protocol across an entire health system, and subsequently, this protocol has been adopted at multiple institutions outside of uh, Yale New Haven. And so one of the things that was very important for us is that we're able to sustain uh, this level of outcomes. And the way that we did that was to create a health system-based resource group um, that was interdisciplinary um, and spanned across the health system. And our goals for this were to standardize education, make sure that we had quality assurance, that we optimized the ordering screens, nursing documentation within the medical record, and uh, importantly for us is that we were able to create a um, method to collaborate on uh, future research. And so one of the things that came out of this resource group was uh, what happens when patients are in the ICU and transfer to the medical floors, the surgical floors. Um, and so when we sign out a patient to the floor and say their mind score was eight, it doesn't correlate to anything um, that the floor teams are uh, familiar with. And so we wanted to see what is the correlation between the modified mind scores and the uh, CEWA scores that were used on the floor. And so uh, what you can see is that these patients look very similar to the patients in the first study regarding their demographics. Um, we did use majority of step-down patients for this and not ICU patients because we needed to make sure that they had enough uh, mental status to be able to participate in CEWA so that we could do that. Um, and then we ended up cross-training the nurses so that um, the nurses were doing simultaneous CEWA scoring and modified mind scoring together. And uh, similar outcomes as far as length of stays um, and hospital stays um, across uh, both of the studies that we did. Um, and uh, we had similar uh, outcomes as far as adjuvant use. And so when we look at the correlation coefficients, um, we can see that these scores, um, especially when they are less than 10, there's a strong correlation between CEWA scores and uh, modified mind scores in a one-to-one -one, uh, correlation. As we uh, move up past scores of 10, there's a lot more spread in the correlation coefficient drops, which you can see here. Um, and so our takeaway from this is that the, uh, when patients have a 
uh, modified mind score less than 10, that that correlates nearly directly one-to-one -one with a CEWA score. And so it gave us the ability to transition these patients out of the ICU to the floor. And for example, if a patient has a score of six, to convey to the uh, medical staff and the nursing staff that uh, we believe this to be equivalent to a CEWA score at six at the time for that patient. We also, in the first study, we looked at whether or not the patients were treated within the time period that the protocol was uh, implemented versus not. Um, and we know that most of the patients, more than 90%, were exposed to the protocol. Um, but what we did not know was um, what was the compliance, so mostly the nursing compliance to the protocol itself. And so we wanted to look at that. And so the way that we define compliance was twofold. First was the dose compliance. And so that was, did the nurse administer the dose within 30 minutes of the score assessment? Um, and then for scoring compliance, we looked at was the score repeated uh, within 80% of the time interval that was specified by the algorithm? And so in uh, this study, we looked at a number of outcomes uh, similarly. And so what we found was that um, for ICU intubation, IC, ICU pneumonia, um, although there is certainly um, looks like there's signals um, that there was improvement in ICU intubation pneumonia with compliance, it did not reach statistical significance. Um, however, there were uh, significant uh, improvements in ICU length of stay as well as duration of mechanical ventilation in the patients um, that did have uh, uh, tight compliance to the protocol. And so overall for us, um, patients with alcohol withdrawal in the ICU can experience serious complications. Um, there's a number of small single center studies that evaluated ICU specific protocols. There certainly needs to be more work to establish a standard of care, I think nationally and as a field of how we manage these patients. Uh, the Yale Alcohol Withdrawal Protocol implementation is associated with a significantly decreased odds of ICU intubation, as well as a significant cost savings for the management of these patients. And uh, looking forward to continued validation research in order to make sure that we have successful uh, ICU protocols. Um, any questions for us? Thank you, that was uh, very interesting. Um, if you saw no significant difference in the benzodiazepine doses, would you attribute your success in decreasing the intubation rates um, and decreasing the rate of pneumonia to? Um, so part of me wants to think that there was some dose, uh, some difference in the benzodiazepine dosing that we weren't able to measure. Um, we went as far as actually plotting out the benzo exposure curve of each individual patient and then overlaying those. And I can't speak to the specifics of what the statistician did, um, but over time could not find a difference. Um, my anecdotal idea um, is that back um, in, uh, before we started this, there was this idea that you would have someone that, um, you know, the patient's getting annoying, the nurses is 
getting annoyed. Um, and we just ended up pulling the trigger just to intubate and propofol them because they're going to end up there anyway. Um, and this was what I believe is fairly common uh, sentiment in the management of these patients. And through the protocol implementation and the discussions, um, we showed that very few of these patients can need to be intubated. And I think it drove a cultural change that intubation is not uh, needed in the pa management of these patients. And I think it was this whole mindset changed because of it. I also think, just to add, um, sort of as an analogy, the river study with like fluid administration and that in the two groups, essentially there was the same amount of fluid given within 72 hours um, with early goal-directed versus not, but um, early goal-directed was early. So in this setting, there's no, it's hard to define what early is because the patients could be withdrawing and kind of peaking at different time points. So I think that that's why we didn't see perhaps a difference in terms of um, when benzo use was more aggressive or not because that peak withdrawal could have been happening at different time points. It wasn't necessarily upon, you know, admission to the ICU because these patients weren't necessarily um, peaking with their withdrawal at that time, but perhaps later. So I think if there's some way we could slice and dice this again, maybe we can find out if that's true. But. Yeah, my guess is that what you've actually done is protocolize uh, clinician attention and, and that's probably the major driving factor and not the dosing of the medications. Um, because you're requiring the physician to go to the bedside, I'm pretty sure that wasn't happening before you had this protocolized. And that may be the major driving factor in your outcomes. I don't know how you could quantify that, but that would, I think, be useful. Any, anyone else? Okay. Well, thank you.